Good morning. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Greet you in the lovely name of Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Now some Sundays back I preached a sermon at Mount Hermon on, uh, on Romans 12 where he tells us, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And from that came the question, what does it mean? Um, What does he have in mind about... um, it being our at reasonable. Uh, what, what does he mean when he says, um, based on the mercies of God? And he says, therefore. Therefore. What is it therefore? What is he talking about before Romans chapter 12? And so um, I began to do a series on, um, on Romans. And... Uh, The reason I ask you to open to Romans chapter 1 is because I find it helpful when somebody is making reference to a passage to to glance over the the passage and say, okay, yes, I, I I know now which passage this is, and yes, I know which one this is. And so what I'd like to do, first of all, is, um, in fact, I'm going to be preaching this morning from Romans chapter 8. But I'd like to give you a preview of the first seven chapters. And so as I make comments about them, perhaps as you flip through them, um, you'll be able to tie together what I'm saying rather than it just be so many words that just sort of fly over your head. So, uh, so looking back at the, uh, at the different chapters, chapter 1, he tells us about the evil inclinations and choices of man. And he, he reminds us that none of us is righteous, including you and me. The, the gospel is introduced in a small way as the solution for man's sin. And in fact, the word gospel means good news. And in practicality, it is the good news the power of God for man's salvation. Chapter 2 addresses the fallacy of trusting in our lineage to save us. He says, where you came from doesn't cut it. It doesn't, it's not going to get you there. Chapter 3 talks about the impossibility of being justified by keeping the law or by any other standard for that matter, no matter how good and how righteous it is. Chapter 4, he uses Abraham as as an example, and he demonstrates that righteousness can only come through faith. And he he demonstrates, in fact, that Abraham, even though he was an Old Testament character, it was his righteousness was because of his faith. God counted Abraham righteous, not because Abraham got it all right, but because Abraham believed God and trusted God. Chapter 5, he explores all the benefits of being justified by faith. Um, He says, uh, and I'll go through a few of these benefits. Uh, Verse 1, he says, we have peace with God. 
as a result of our justification. Verse 2, we have access to grace, which is uh, favor with God, the power to succeed, the undeserved provision of God, it includes the calling of God, the provision for our salvation, the power to live successfully in our salvation. Uh, we're, talk, we're talking about the, the benefits of, of being justified by faith. Uh, verse 3 and 4, even tribulation can't destroy us. In fact, it leads us to hope and love. Verse 5, we have hope because of that. Verse 6 to 8, we experience the love of God. Verse 9, we will be saved from his wrath. Verse 10, we, will, we are saved by his life. And his resurrection power saves us from the slavery to the world. Verse 11, we can and we do rejoice in God. In chapter 5, we begin to understand that not only can we be justified, but that we gain new life. So, uh, George is a young guy, and he, he wants a car. And uh, he has an old friend. And this old friend, he... Um, he says, well, you know, I've got, a, I've got a car here. It doesn't run, but I'll, I'll sell it to you cheap. And so uh, George don't have much money, and, and so he buys this old car. And, uh, you know, it might be cheap, but George can't get it paid back. He's just stuck. Not just that, the car don't run. And uh, so his friend says, George, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm going to forgive you that debt. See, that's justification. He forgave him the debt. It was just like it didn't ever happen. He now owns a car, but it still don't run. And see, that's the way we are with, with, with when we're just justified. But he says, hey, there's more than that. You're not only justified, I'm going to give you a new life. And so George's friend comes over and says, George, let's work on this car. Now, George don't know anything about mechanics, but his old friend is a mechanic. And they work on this car. They work on this car, okay? George, George just works with him, okay? He, he gives him the okay. He lets him do it, just like the Holy Spirit working in our life. We don't work in our life, but we work in our life, right? He does the work. And you see, when it gets done, he not only has a car, he has a restored classic, and it runs. And that's what God wants from you and I. Chapter 6 answers two questions that might arise. Since grace multiplies to cover every sin, shall we keep sinning so that God's grace can be glorified? Second question, since we are no longer under the law, is it okay to live like we please? And in both, in both cases, the answer is a resounding no. We are not only justified from past sin, we are to live a brand new life because sin brings death and God's gift is life. Chapter 7 shows us how we can be free from the law. 
It comes not from the law being destroyed, but by our own death. And so he uses the illustration of marriage and declares that we are the marriage partner that dies so that we can be free from the marriage to the law so that God can raise us up and we can be married to Jesus Christ. Now that's a unique way to be married again, isn't it? Turn to chapter 8. The title of my sermon this morning is Life in the Spirit as Adopted Children of God. Life in the Spirit as Adopted Children of God. And I think I'd like to start by reading the first 14 verses of this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit and life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit." For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. But so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit." If so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So if you go back to Romans chapter 7, um, one of the... One of the um, things that Romans 7 is, is remembered for is, is the, the verse that says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of, of this death? Now, you know, Romans chapter 7, he's, he's describing how um, he, he so badly wants to, to obey God. And in spite of it, he always finds himself in, in failure mode. And... Um, And so he asks, he, he sort of comes to the end of chapter 7 and he answers the question. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he comes to chapter 8 and he says, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. 
And I think that there would be a lot of people in this world that would be very happy if, if somehow they would meet up with somebody who could talk to them and say, you know, you are not condemned. Because down inside of our hearts, we know we are without Christ. It's there. That, that feeling, that sense that something is not right inside. But he, he tells us there is no condemnation to who? To those who are in Christ Jesus. To those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, go with me back to the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the Ark is a, is a type of Christ. And uh, so you have, you have the Ark, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's so wide and so, or so long and so wide and so tall. And, uh, and it gives us specifications exactly, and right now they're not coming to me. But um, inside the ark is, is the important things for the law. There's the, there's the, uh, the showbread, there's Aaron's rod, there's uh, the Ten Commandments. It seems like maybe there's something else, and I can't think what it is. And um, this, this ark is made out of... Um, out of wood. And then it's covered with gold, signifying the not only the humanity of Jesus, but the but the deity. On top of this ark sits a it's a something called a mercy seat. And it's actually the lid for this box, and on top of the mercy seat are, are the are the cherubim, and on top of the mercy seat is where the flame of fire was when God was there. Signified the um, the presence of uh, of God. Now, what I want you to understand this morning is that this mercy seat is exactly as long as the ark. It's exactly as wide as the ark. It's not a bit less, and it's not a bit more. And that tells us something. Well, let's 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 go let's go to another ark for a moment before I, I make my point, and that is the ark of of Noah. Everything that was outside of the ark drowned. Correct. Everything that was inside was safe. And if you put those two pictures together, it tells us something: that only when we are in Christ are we under the mercy seat. Only that which is inside the ark is safe. And so he tells us there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says, those who are in Christ Jesus do not walk after the flesh, but they walk after the spirit. Now, one of the questions that sort of came to my mind as I read this is, is what does he mean, who Walk not. Is he saying that some people can be in Christ Jesus but walk after the flesh? Or is he saying, so is he saying, um, 
when they do not walk after the flesh, but walk after the spirit, as it says, because they don't walk after the flesh, but they walk after the spirit. And I think he's saying that it's because, because those who are in Christ Jesus do not walk after the flesh. They walk after the spirit. And, and he, uh, he, he sort of makes that point further in, uh, in verses 9 and 14. Ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in you. In verse 14, as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So there's no condemnation. Not only that, but uh, living in the spirit. And so he, he tells us that living in the spirit is the solution to chapter 7's problem. And, and so first of all, as I said, we have, there's no condemnation. That is one way it's, it's, um, it is the solution. Secondly, it enables us to obey God in our physical bodies. That is one of the problems with, with, the, um, with the law. The law is one of the reasons the law cannot save anybody. You know, anybody can make a rule. But there's one thing to make a rule and it's another thing to keep it. And, uh, you know, the, God, the, the rules, the, the law came from God. It was perfect. There was nothing wrong with the law. It said exactly what God wanted it to say. The problem wasn't, the problem was the law couldn't give anybody power to do it. And so he says, when we live in the spirit, not only is there no condemnation, but also he gives us power to do what is right. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, there are three other laws mentioned in chapter 7. There's the law of God, which, which is referred to. In fact, you will find them referred to but not named in verses 14 to 17. But when you get down to the last part of the chapter, verses 22 and 23, you'll find those three laws named. There's the law of God, uh, which in verse 14 and 16 is called the law. Um, in fact, let's just read those verses. I want to read those verses. Uh, verse 14 of 7, for we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, do I allow not for what I would or what I want to do that I don't do but what I hate that I do if then I do that which I would not I consent unto the law that it is good so then it is no more I that do it but sin or the law of sin that dwells in me and then in uh, verses uh, 22 For I delight in the law of God, that's the first law, the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. So there's a law of my mind. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, the third law, which is in my members. So, so, the, so he's in a bad spot. He... he the, uh, the law of his mind, I believe, wants to do what's right. 
the law of God tells him what's right, but the law of sin keeps him from doing what's right. And so now we have a fourth law. It says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That is what breaks the chains. That's what gives me the power to do what I really want to do in my heart. That is serve God. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Now living in the flesh, living in the flesh or living in the spirit is something that happens, is determined by the mind. <coughs> Excuse me. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit, to, for to be carnally minded is death. <coughs> Excuse me. Furthermore, it tells us that a, a uh, fleshly mind is hostile to God. But someone that lives in the spirit has a spiritual mind. Our mindset, our desires, our focus is to obey and follow God. Now, living in the, when the Spirit lives in us, it tells us that our body is dead, our spirit lives, and in the process, our bodies become alive. So follow, let's follow through with that one. Um, verse 8, let's start, let's start verse 7. For the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be, so, that then, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead. There it is. The body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. So, so now think with me a little bit. Um, when you're born again, what becomes alive? What part of you? It's your spirit. That's redeemed, right? Is your soul, has your soul been redeemed? Now, I, I'm going to use soul in the sense that, that I've been taught it, okay? Not, I'm not going to tie it together with, I find the, um, I don't find that spirit and soul is so, so distinctly defined in the scripture, Okay? Sometimes I think they're used a little interchangeably, and yet we, we read about aspects of the soul. So I'm going to define it this way, and then you'll understand what I mean, I believe. So as, when you think about your soul, you can think about your mind, your will, and your emotions. Okay? If you think of soul from that standpoint, has your soul been redeemed? Always. Are your emotions always redeemed? Somebody bangs into your car and takes off. Is your soul redeemed? Do you have a redeemed response? Does your mind always think about right things? Is your will always given to God? And I think we're going to answer no. It's not. 
But is it more redeemed now than what it was when you were converted? And I think if you're alive and a growing Christian, your answer is going to be yes, it is. And so your, your spirit has been redeemed. Your soul is being redeemed. And what about your body? Is your body redeemed? Is it getting redeemed? The answer is no. It's still flesh. And... Um, We'll see that back down in, in verse 22 and 23. We're waiting for the adoption, the, the last part of 23, to wit, or that is to say, the redemption of our body. That is something we're still looking forward to, so hang on to that one. But when, but if the Spirit, verse 11, if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make your mortal bodies alive by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you through the spirit mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And so... So God, through his spirit, gives us the power to bring our physical bodies in control. Your physical body will never want to obey God. It always wants something else. But that's why Paul says, I die daily. It is a death experience day by day by day to put this flesh on the cross so that it dies and don't feed it, but, and, but take charge of it by the Spirit through your, through your um, soul and put it in its place and make it behave because that's all you're going to do in this life. But you see, as your spirit is connected to God and as your soul is as your mind and your will and your emotions and whatever else that, that, that I didn't mention is, is more and more made into the image of Jesus, then our body doesn't have anything else to do other than to give up and obey. Isn't that how, sort of how it works? But, but someday, well, we'll talk about So in this, he tells us there's a choice that we have to make. He says, you are a debtor. You are a debtor because Christ died for you, because he, he, he paid the price, because he redeemed you, because he's given you his spirit. You don't have an excuse. You are a debtor to not follow the dictates of your flesh when it tells you to do what it wants you to do, but rather, through the Spirit, you are to mortify or to kill the deeds of the body so that you can live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You see, we have a choice.
Now, I'd like you to notice one other little thing. It says here, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. Now, what is one necessary ingredient for something to die? Somebody tell me. What's one thing you have to have for something to die? Exactly. So, um, I just find that interesting. Uh, you see, there's a lot of theories around here about, um, or not around here, around everywhere, about how the Christian life works. And, and to some people, they believe that once we are saved, then we can never be, as it were, unsaved. And to some other folks, they say, well, if we are actually saved, we will persevere till the end. My question to you, is that what it says? It says, if you choose to live after the flesh, you're going to die. And I don't see either one of those being compatible with that verse. So that's just a little extra. The sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. That is, God's life is living inside of us. God's life is inside of us. Okay, verse 14. Again, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And so our adoption in Christ makes us children of God. That is, when we're born again, we're adopted into the family of God. When we're born again, we receive the Spirit of God. It's all talking about the same thing, I believe. But there's something unique that happens. Now, now remember I said that it was important to make right choices because if you don't make right choices, you're going to die. Okay, so now there's a tendency then to, to just, to those who take their Christian life seriously to you know, shaking their shoes. How can I be sure that I, I stay in Christ? Okay? But he answers that question here. He says, you have not received, verse 15, you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now, the, the, the bondage, as in under the law, the word again is like a fan that is an oscillating fan. It's blowing this way, it's blowing this way, it's blowing this way, okay? You have not received the spirit of an oscillating fear. You have not received the spirit of the law, of the bondage. To where, where the fear is always, if I mess up, I'm going to get my head cut off, okay? I'm going to get stoned. That's not the kind of... That's not what we have. 
Instead, he says, we've received the spirit of adoption, which causes us to cry, Abba, Father. Now, what's that mean? It means daddy. That's personal. That's what we have. God is, no, is not a God with a big stick sitting on top of us, just waiting for us to mess up so he can knock us upside the head. That's not what we have. When we're born again, we have a father. We have a God who is, who is, who is caring for you. Now, I hope you've had a father who you can tie this together with. Not everybody does. Some people do have a father with a big stick. Or no stick, which is also not very good. Um, because we tend to understand God the way we understand our fathers. But you see, when we, when we come to Jesus and, when, and Jesus becomes our Savior, we have the right to call God Daddy. Not only that, it says the spirit beareth witness. That is, the spirit testifies in our hearts that we are the children of God. So we have the inner testimony of, of the spirit. And verse 17, we are heirs of everything that God has. That is, whatever belongs to God belongs to you. Now, as with other things, there's some, a few rules that, that go along with it. Did you ever think about when, you, when you're up on Skyline Drive or, or some other park that that belongs to you? Did you ever think about it that way? But it does because you are, are, are a citizen of the United States and it belongs to the United States and so it belongs to you. Now, does that mean you can go up there and cut firewood? No. Not in the park you can't, Okay. So just because something belongs to you does not mean you can tell God, okay, now it all belongs to me. I want a Cadillac. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. But there are, um, there are, are spiritual things that God has provided for you that are yours because you belong to him. Now, I would like to remind you that life in the spirit is not the final outcome. At least not life in the spirit as we know it today. Verse 18, for I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, now when we say creature, read creation, okay? For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature, or the creation, was made subject to vanity, that is, subject to die, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. I think we'll stop there for the moment. No, we won't. We'll keep going. Um, and not only they, but ourselves also, 
which had the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting for the adoption, that is to say the redemption of our body, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen, that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, what does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And so not the, the life in the spirit is not the final outcome. We are waiting, we are looking forward to the redemption of the universe, it says that the, uh, the whole creation groans and travails in pain. It's, it, there's a lot of stuff wrong in this world, as beautiful as it is. And I was walking down here this morning, down the road a few minutes, and wished I had another half an hour. It was so beautiful. The weather was almost beautiful in the shade. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the smell of the pines and the birds singing, and, and, and yet it's not perfect. It's, there's a lot wrong with it. All you have to do is watch, uh, you know, one animal choke another one to death and start eating him alive. You know, the world is not, the world is in pain. Someday it's not going to be that way. Not only that, but we look forward to the redemption of our bodies. <laughs> our bodies, wait till you get past 50 if you're not already, and you'll know what I'm talking about. I don't need to say any more. <laughs> it just isn't like it used to be. But that's not all. We look forward to the redemption of our bodies to where we will not have a flesh that wants us to do what it shouldn't do. Not only that, but God is actively involved in our redemption. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Now, who searches the hearts? Somebody that knows the mind of the Spirit. It's either God or Jesus, isn't it? Um, but he makes intercession, so it wouldn't be God. It wouldn't be the Father. It must be Jesus. He that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And so we have, we have the... The whole, the whole triune God that is rooting for us, the whole, the whole Godhead that is working for our salvation, for our completion. We have the Spirit praying for us when we don't know how to pray. We have, we have Jesus interceding for us. And now, verse, uh, verse 29, we have... I thank the Father, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be condemned, uh, to be conformed, I'm sorry, to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so God 
sacrificed the most precious thing he had, his own son, and sent him down here to live and to die and to put up with everything that you have to put up with down here in the midst of a people who were the most obstinate, rebellious, aggravating people that you could possibly be with. I believe that's true according to scripture and according to history. During that time, it was one of the craziest times he could possibly send somebody, and he did, to be, to die, and to raise again for us. And if God did all that for you, do you think he's standing over you with a stick just waiting to beat you upside the head? Do you really? He's not. He wants to be your father. Shall he not with him, with Jesus, that's what he already gave you, is Jesus, shall he not, in addition to him, give you everything else you need? And the answer is yes. He will. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, we should not miss this, that it is Christ that condemns. Okay? He does have the power to condemn. He will condemn those that do not believe and trust in him. He will do that. But where is he? What is the next statement? Who is also where? At the right hand of God interceding for us. Where's his heart? What does he want out of you? He wants you in heaven. That's where he wants you. And he's, he's doing everything that God can possibly do to see that it happens. There is one thing. Well, now I'm going to finish reading because I didn't read that part. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? I'm going to go stop. Watch it. There's one thing that's not in that list. Or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. And that one thing is you. You're the only enemy that God's not going to withstand. The enemy to yourself. As is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And you know what? If you love God, if you determine to serve God, and you give your heart to God, God will even protect you from yourself. I believe that with all my heart. God will protect you from yourself. You're your own greatest enemy. You're the one that can cause yourself to fail. But God can even protect you from yourself. And uh, I just... Uh, I get excited when I think about a God who loves me that much. You think you want to get to heaven? You don't want to get to heaven 
nearly as bad as God wants you to get there. And uh, I rest and I rejoice in that. Let's have a song.